Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a TechCrunch podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex, and I am joined today by two of our finest fintech reporters. On one corner, we have Mary Ann Azevedo. Hello, how are you? Hi, Alex. Doing great. How are you? I am alive, well, and enjoying summer because, oh my gosh, I could lay outside on the couch forever. <laughs> Ugh, it's hard to work, actually. Uh, we also have Natasha Moskranis here. Natasha, hi. How are you? You know what? I'm doing good. We had a long weekend, short week. Can't complain. Long weekend, short week. But then what happens is you get five days of work shoved into four days. And so I wonder if it actually ends up being as net positive to our mental health as we think. Because oh my the God. task list doesn't stop. Right. Also, right. like summer Fridays, I have in quotations. <laughs> Biggest joke. Yeah. <laughs> they don't exist for news. They actually, don't. The, <laughs> the thing about a summer Friday, if you don't know what this is, in the States, it, it's common to let some employees go early on Friday if they can. And the original idea was this allowed New Yorkers to get to the Hamptons ahead of traffic. Now, in the news business, what happens is you tell yourself Friday morning, it's a summer Friday, I'm leaving at noon, and then at 5.30 p.m., you're slowly shuffling out the door. And that's just <laughs> how it goes. Exactly. And what have we been doing? Well, there's been a lot going on. This week, we're going to talk about deals from Mowlak, Peakflow, and Cauldron. We're going to talk about what is going on at Bolt and how its lawsuit has settled down, if you will. Then we're going to riff on things from OutSchool and Loft. That'll be the bad news segment of the show. And then we'll close with Q2 and raising money in a sour market and how some VCs are bucking the trends. But we're going to start, Marianne, with Malak, which we all thought was doing one thing for one particular consumer and is actually doing that thing for someone else. So what's going on here? Yeah. So this company is taking an ingredient in breast milk that is supposed to be very, very important for the well-being of infants and convert it into something that adults can consume. So at first, I was particularly intrigued since I'm a, a mother who nursed my daughter for far longer than many would deem socially appropriate. And my first thought was, okay, great. Does this have something to do with the formula shortage? But then, right. you know, realized that no, not necessarily. They're looking into taking the, and the ingredient is colostrum, I believe is how you pronounce it, and turning it into food and wellness supplements for adults. I mean, that's fantastic. I was also thinking this was for babies. As I think we've said on the show, I'm having a kid later this year, so I've been paying more Ooh. attention to the formula shortage because panic. But Natasha, this is actually going to be a superfood for us adults. And so I'm curious on a scale of one to pour me a big glass, where are you on the Malak front? <laughs> okay, well, I'm the kind of person that orders oat milk in my coffee, but then has a cheese board. So I feel like you can't really trust the way that I pursue dairy in, in any way. <laughs> that being said, I feel like I would be interested in this as one of the ideas is like preventative measures. Yeah. And like similar to like the scoop of ambiguous green powder that you can add to the smoothies, this falls into the same same kind of bucket. So I think branding and influencers will be very key in order to get people like me to, to try it. I was intrigued though that this colostrum, which is apparently present in the milk of mammals for the first few days after giving birth, is often discarded at dairies. So that accounts for like more than 5 billion liters of waste per year. So this company, I guess, is thinking, let's take this very nutrient-rich substance and turn it into something that will actually help people. I think one of the applications they were talking about is for, let's see, athletes, right? Like, yeah helping athletes. And I don't know, though, like, I'm still sort of skeptical. Clearly, the company's still very early stage pre revenue. I wonder if there are people who are just going to be turned off at this idea too turned off to even try it, but I could be wrong. Well, I just think that's where branding comes in. Because if you go to people and you say, hey, do you want some breast milk? <laughs> you're going to get a strange look like 100% of the time. But right. if you say, hi, this is a superfood that will aid with muscle recovery time in high performance athletes. 
Well, then that's the same thing, but it sounds so much better. And that's why marketing has a job. But I think this is neat. I hope it's more than a smoothie shot though, Natasha. You're describing like, do you want a wheat shot in your smoothie? And the answer is no, but I don't think I also want another type of thing to just add into what I already eat. Like I want something that's more impactful. Yeah. Oh my God. It'll be really cool. We should follow up on this company in a year to see what their product looks like on shelves. Obviously it's going to get a lot of attention whenever that does happen. Yes. Mm -hmm. And it'd be interesting to see how much they lean into it. But I wanted to circle back to kind of how we started talking about the company, which is we all did think it would make sense to address the child formula shortage. And I talked to Christine Hall on our team who wrote the story. And she basically said that the founder didn't give an explanation for why it wouldn't be used for children, but did say that the product was going to be used more for supplements, which you wouldn't necessarily gift to children. So think of it as like preventative nutrition or replace the use of steroids. Those two phrases I feel like would make parents probably back away from even thinking about this use for their children. Uh, It doesn't still answer our question though of like, can they expand and why didn't they start there? It's just kind of where they're at today. I have a guess and this is, I'm theory crafting here or spitballing, but like my presumption is that in the United States, baby formula is highly regulated. Right. right. I bet there's a lot of controls in place to ensure quality. And if you've paid attention to the Chinese market and how dairy products there have suffered with regulatory lapses, you might say over the years, it's an important thing to have. That said, I do wonder if in this case, the company looked at the market and said, if we're going to pursue that market with this product, it's going to be such an uphill slog to get approval. So why not get the tech down, figure out some applications for adults as a supplement, which is a much lower bar for regulatory approval. And then off to the races. I mean, they raised 4 million, not 400. You know? yeah, yeah, that's right. They did. forgot to mention how much they raised. And also it's important to note this company was founded in 2018. So at okay. that time, okay. a formula shortage didn't exist. Right. Right. You know, remember that startup that, is it Mark Cuban's building with like the low cost generic drugs? Prescriptions, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's really dope. I hope someone does that for like insulin and then also like baby formula. Like why not put together a business that just operates at cost plus 1% and does staples, you know, like the Amazon basics of batteries, but for baby formula. Oh, I mean, I'm hearing that Mark Cuban startup is actually making a difference in terms of right. making other digital health companies sweat a little bit, which makes me really happy because sometimes you see, I mean, I don't know, we talked about this in the pod when he launched that company and we'll link the story in the show notes because the name is totally escaping me. I remember being like, this seems too good to be true. Like, of course he wants to do this. Who doesn't? For it to actually work means that companies like this could use that as a playbook down the road. Absolutely. It's amazing. Let's move along. I have a deal this week. I covered a funding round, which I don't do much anymore, but I did grab one. (laughs) I wrote about Peak Flow. And the reason why I picked this up is because I highlighted it as one of my favorite companies from the last Y Combinator demo day batch. And so when I got an email saying, hi, this is the company you liked. I'm like, ah, hoisted upon my own petard. I should talk to them. (laughs) Ended up as all calls with startups, a good time. And Marianne, the pitch is build.com for Southeast Asia. And you know, that makes a lot of sense to me because Bill.com is a big company. It's public. Southeast Asia is a big market. And as we know, corporate spend's a big thing. So from a model perspective, I think they're really onto something. I'm curious though, FinTech friends, mm-hmm. how often are we hearing about proven models moving their way over to Southeast Asia in the FinTech category and kind of seeing similar success to products that we've seen in the US? You know, honestly, I haven't covered that region enough to give you an informed answer, Alex. That would probably be our reporters in Asia can answer better than I. However, I was intrigued by this company's traction. As you outlined in the story, they were refreshingly transparent about their financials and they seem to be 
growing pretty strongly so far. Yeah. So back when they were in YC, they noted that they had $13,000 worth of MRR or monthly recurring revenue, and they're hoping to reach 1 million in ARR, annual recurring revenue in, I think, early 2023. The way that I asked this question was, are you going to hit the million dollar mark this year? And the CEO very politely hemmed and hawed and said, well, you know, early next year. So I bet you a nickel, they want to hit it this year, but next year will be fine too. Yeah. I'm going to try taking a swing. I'm still wrapping up on fintech, but I was talking to a VC recently who was giving me some background on what business models have been most interesting to her in the recent months. She's based in the US. That said, she said that the breakdown of fintechs doing both the SaaS and transaction volume collab have obviously gotten a lot of attention and traction during the pandemic. But now a lot of those companies are ditching transaction value and transaction volume as something that they're pitching VCs and are focusing just on SaaS. So I wonder if Peakflow is pursuing that same playbook. To me, it made a lot of sense to see fintech go away from its finicky part and go to its more stable part of revenue. And finicky, you mean transaction revenue, which can go up and down based on you know what season it is versus SaaS right. revenue, which tends to be more durable? Yeah, yeah. You get that person and they stick with you at least for a year or so. More reliable in a, in a downturn. Yeah, so I, I asked the company about this. And back to Marianne's point about Peakflow being kind of transparent, I was just riffing with the CEO about margins. Gross margins are essentially how much of revenue do you get to keep to use to pay operating expenses? So higher gross margins, better. And he said, you know, SaaS can be 80, 85%. Transactional revenue, 40%. So it's just, it's half quality revenue. And so if you're out there trying to pitch VCs, I think you want to have a comp that's taking less damage than fintech. And you probably want to stress how strong your software business is versus your transactional revenues. So to me, that all makes sense. I think it's a pretty cool company. The thing, Marianne, that I'm excited about is because they're just doing the kind of payments in, payments out bill.com thing. I'm just counting down until they begin to do corporate spend more generally, because yeah. I feel like that's what everyone's doing these days. Yeah. I mean, that was the first thing I thought too, because there's so much of that happening in the corporate spend space with emphasis on software as opposed to just fees. So yeah, actually that was one of my first thoughts too, Alex, is how much it reminded me of what's going on in the corporate spend space with such a, a new emphasis on software revenue as opposed to interchange fees. Exactly. Perhaps a silly question, but why did corporate expense management pop up for both of you so fast? I actually didn't guess that at all. I mean, I know how it happened to me, Marion, but I think you were first. Why don't you, why don't you well, take Well, I mean, one? it was just the first comparison because like Brex earlier this year made a big deal about wanting to make a huge push into software and going after enterprise customers. And it obviously followed that up with cutting out its SMB client. So I feel like an Airbase, of course, has been for a long time touting that its recurring revenues from software are much more viable long-term source of revenue. So- and I think that it can be just logical, you know, in terms of doing payments, moving into spend management. Yeah. Also keep in mind, Airbase went to war a little bit with its own market by essentially remitting. This was a story that I wrote earlier this year when I was talking to Tejo about it, the CEO. They remitted essentially all their interchange revenues back as cash back for the people who use their cards. Oh. And so they essentially said, we're going to zero out that revenue stream as much as we can, which is a direct attack on Ramp, a Brex competitor that came out later, because that's how they make all their money. So anyways, there's a lot of nuance here, but I think Natasha much like everything, where there's money in motion, you build software around it. And so if they're going to be dealing with money in motion, why not build more software? Yeah, especially in fintech. Especially in fintech. Famously, the hodgepodge of business models. You just keep adding stuff until you take it public. Let's harp, let's <laughs> pull the emergency <laughs> brake, turn the steering wheel to the left, and let's skid across the parking lot right into the world of Web3. <laughs> Natasha, what the f- 
Because a cauldron. <laughs> that might be the most dramatic transition <laughs> to date on equity. And I'm so here for it and honored to be getting the baton. <laughs> but Cauldron is a new startup. It raised $6.6 million to build, quote, the Pixar of Web3. And, you know, it's a gaming studio that was spun off, I guess, in August 2021. It's all about trying to create affordable games for the Web3 universe. It's going to like launch two or three worlds and two of them have a fantasy angle. One's focused on science fiction. It's kind of exactly as vague, but interesting and Web3 focused as it sounds. There's so many angles to go into. So (laughs) I'm glad we're talking about it on the show. Okay. So this one threw us a little bit for a loop. So what we did was we got a hold of Jacqueline Melnick, who's been on the show. She's on the crypto team. She writes for TC Plus. She's great. And we're trying to figure out what is Cauldron doing that is distinct from other gaming projects that makes it a Web3 thing. Because we often hear about like Web3X, Web3Y. And I always try to figure out what does that mean in the context of the blockchain? So as far as I can tell, these games, Natasha, are not going to be on the blockchain. Instead, they're going to be games that you can play and kind of like more open worldy kind of choose your own adventure type things. And then the assets in the game will be recorded on blockchains and therefore immutable or more scarce or whatever. Uh, cool. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. No, no, I, I mean, my brain just sort of, you know, kind of exploded a little bit at that. The So this exists to some degree. So like I play a game called Destiny 2 because I'm a nerd. And in Destiny, there's a persistent storage system where when you get certain legendary items, you can save them. So you don't have them in your inventory. And I have a, a long back catalog from different seasons of guns and armor and stuff. And that's pretty cool. That works. I guess it's not like tradable for money, but I mean... We've had in-game economies before. I want to give these people benefit of the doubt because I think they're actually pursuing gaming with a Web3 twist, which I think has a possibility of working versus Web3 gaming with a, you know, like with a fun yeah, twist. Like, like this yeah. seems to be more correct. I mean, I was just going to quickly say I'm intrigued by their goals to incorporate storytelling into this to like give the person participating a way to to be really creative. I think that's interesting how that will play out, though, in like real life. I'm a little dubious about. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of this like weird. There's two sides of it. On one side, we know a little bit about the indie gaming world and how there's a lot of opportunity, at least in traditional VCs minds too, of ways that startups can make the indie VC world into like a more smooth running operation. There's tons of gaming funds out there. So I feel like Cauldron would fit into that bucket of trying to serve a user base that's ripe and ready for it. On the other side, something I struggle to know, and it's because I'm not a gamer. So it's more of a question than an assumption is do people crave designing and owning a part of a universe and being this hands-on? We know Roblox exists and we know that that has sat with people, but how does Cauldron kind of push that to another level? It sounds like it's just ownership, but I don't know how much people care about true ownership versus the feeling of ownership. Right. I mean, I would kind of argue what's the difference. I think the difference is resaleability. For example, if I own a certain gun in Destiny 2, I own it, right? I can't sell it though. And so I think the additional thing here is the ability to monetize in-game items to a degree. I'm curious if uniqueness scales because if everyone wants to have a unique sword in this persistent universe they're going to build, how many unique swords can you have Yeah. before they end up kind of being repetitious or so forth? So I'm, I'm curious and I'll also be curious to see if the web three element of this Natasha becomes hidden in the background and therefore yeah. I don't have to use it, which is that's, that'd be fine. I just don't want to have to like link my MetaMask account to my Xbox account, to my Microsoft account, to my Steam account to play something so I can get a $5 token. Maybe Yeah. Like, that sounds like a bit much. 
<laughs> yeah, right. Surprisingly, it's not giving the tone at all. I looked at their website briefly before this episode and they're not giving the vibe of we're trying to on-ramp people into Web3. It's very much like we're here to serve something that you want. And so it's another, I think it's serving a different clientele. It's not going to be maybe convincing people to join. Unlike a lot of these consumer-focused Web3 plays we've been seeing recently that I feel like are trying to prove that they're legit. Well, as Shakespeare said, double, double toil and trouble, fire, burn and cauldron bubble. This may not be a bubbly investment because it's small and focused on a known niche. So it might work out. But let's move on to Bolt. That was the fastest Shakespeare Googling I've ever done in my life. Wow. I was like, does he know this? Well, I mean, I knew the, I knew most of it. Then I forgot the last couple of yeah, words. Yeah, you can't. Misquote Shakespeare. Our DMs would be ruined. Yes. How dare you insult the bard? Yeah, piss off. All right. So, Marianne, we're going to bring back a company today that we have not talked about for a long time, but they did have a lightning strike of news this week. What's going on with Bolt? Good one, Alex. So, Bolt, where do I begin? Uh, This week, they announced that a lawsuit that was filed against it by Forever 21's parent company, Authentic Brands Group, was settled. Okay. Great, settled. But what is so odd about the settlement is that the customer, by the way, this is a customer that filed the lawsuit and said all sorts of disparaging things about the company in that suit is now a shareholder of Bolt. <laughs> this is so strange. It is. And, and like, Marianne, the, the claims that ABG made against Bolt were not small. Like, there was the note that they lost, they claimed to have lost like $150 million in sales, which is a lot. Right. It's huge. And so it's like, it's just so weird to be like, okay, we're just trashing this company, saying they're doing a shit job saying that they overstated the nature of its integrations, raised money at really high valuations because of that overstating. And then now all of a sudden, hey, we're a shareholder and we can't wait to explore more partnerships with this company. It feels like a reality show, kind of. I wish I could think of a parallel immediately to a reality show, but I don't watch enough. But I'm just imagining like it's these people that you saw fighting you know, last episode and the next episode, they're back together in a, in a new kind of defined relationship. And I'm just like, what happened? Like, what did we miss? It sounds like part of the settlement includes Bolt actually offering its one-click checkout services back to them mm-hmm. and, you know, potentially expanding. I wonder if they're paying for those services, if a discount was part of it. I mean, yeah. this is just me hypothesizing right now, but I'm like, what are the things that happen behind the scenes? Yeah, I'd love to know the terms of that deal, right? But of course they wouldn't share that. And By the way, Insider in April did report that they thought this lawsuit was an attempt to claim an ownership stake in the company. I don't really fully, of course, understand all of that. It just seems like a backwards way of trying to to claim ownership in a a company. But Bolt's had its share of negative headlines over the past few months. So it's really trying to turn itself around with a new CEO. He took over in January, replacing Ryan Breslow, who founded the company, a very outspoken young man. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> who's who's been very vocal very on tweets? <laughs> yeah, very vocal on Twitter about as many opinions on uh, VCs and other fintechs. So it feels like this company is really trying to you know, revamp its image, move forward. There was a lot of claims about its revenues not being what they should be. They laid off staff earlier this year. The new CEO told me, and by the way, he spent eight years at Amazon. He, he actually seems very sharp. He told me that they have three years of operating runway currently. So. That's yeah, not wow. bad. I'm imagining like a to-do list yeah. of things they need to do before they can like kind of reinvent themselves. And it feels like they've really like ran through it with the layoffs, with the new CEO and with this settlement. Is there anything else, like any other storylines that we're yet to see about Bolt? Or does this end the conclusion of their falling apart and now begin? No. The re- <laughs> okay, tell me. No. 
<laughs> well, in January, they raised a $355 million Series E that valued the company at $11 billion. Oof. You might think, hey, maybe Bolt's about to go public. Nope. Marianne, what was the revenue number we had recently? I forget. Oh, my gosh. I actually don't remember either, but it was really, really low compared to that valuation. Oh, no, that's right. It was, okay, so revenue from transactions, Bolt Process grew around 10% to $28 million last year after it slashed the fees merchants pay. So it had processed more than a 10% growth in volume, but reduced its cost. But $28 million against a $10 billion valuation, call it 25, right? That's 100x, or it was a 400x. My brain's, Mm -hmm. it's a very high multiple. It doesn't make any damn sense. Right. No matter what it is. Right. So like that has not been solved, Natasha. They still have to deal with that. Three years, maybe they could get there, but that's going to be a tough three years. I mean, $11 billion is a a really high valuation to defend, especially when you, you have less than impressive revenue numbers like this. So we'll have to see how it plays out. But interestingly, the new CEO who, by the way, his name is Maju Kuravila. Okay. I may have butchered that. He told me that Ryan is no longer really involved with day-to-day operations in the company, that it's pretty much all him and that Ryan and the board were looking at him to steer the ship. This also reminds me, I, how can I not mention this? Better.com also um, <laughs> announced today that they've got this flurry of new senior executive hires as it too attempts to revamp its tarnished image, which is an understatement. <laughs> I just want to point out that $11 billion is such a big number that Coinbase is worth 12 to $14 billion, depending on how you calculate market cap. Wow. And its trailing revenues are $7.2 billion. Wow. Which is more than $28 million. <laughs> so, Just a little bit. Alex. Just a little bit. So anyways, that's why I'm stuck kind of worrying what the CEO is going to do. But given that he has shown the ability to slash staff, blah, 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 and essentially boot the founder from upstairs out the house, maybe they'll be able to pull off a valuation reduction and raise more capital and be okay. The ship seems to be riding. Right. We'll see how it goes. Crisis comes up. People are working overtime. <laughs> the, the new suite of executives. Marion, you talked to someone who joined better, right? How has that gone? I mean, I know we have to move to the next section, but I'm just, well, how the heck? <laughs> yeah. I mean, he was, he was all peppy about being excited about being at this company and called it a rebirth and, you know, just thrilled to be there. It was interesting. And they've managed to land a number of senior executives from fairly high profile companies. Yeah. Zillow for one. These attempts by these startups who've had some really negative headlines to kind of reinvent their images and turn around their companies is fascinating and definitely something we'll be watching over the next few months to a year. Yes. And if your startup has a name that starts with B and Marianne calls, hang up immediately because it's not going to go well for you. I'm kidding. Don't hang up. Always answer all of her questions on the record. Uh, (laughs) Let's move on to our second theme of the day, which is the unicorns aren't all right. And we are going to discuss a couple of companies here that have had big 2021s and are having much smaller 2022s, at least in staffing terms, Natasha. Yeah. So I covered a startup that I've actually, I mean, I've loved to cover this company and I've been really interested in it since I broke into first reporting on EdTech. It's called OutSchool. It's a marketplace for kid-friendly virtual after-school programs. And it really popped off during the pandemic. It raised a series B, C, and D in 12 months and then kind of grew its valuation in in just four months from 1 billion to 3 billion. So you can kind of guess where this story is going based on our current news environment. They last month laid off 18% of their workforce, about 31 people, as confirmed by their CEO, Amir Nathu. And I mean, the way he attributed it to me over text was that we need to be more defensive going into the second half of the year. That's kind of where it ended. And the spokesperson confirmed that 75% of employees at OutSchool joined in the past two years. So doing the very high level math, a lot of the layoffs were these new-ish hires that were part of this pandemic boom, not necessarily just this original crew that was getting cut. I mean, growing from 25 to 164 that quickly, 
Okay, let's just be totally honest. Hiring's hard. Finding the right people is tough, even if there's a lot of smart people out there. And you're going to hire some wrong people if you grow that quickly. Right. And so maybe an element of this is kind of, I don't like the phrase cutting the fat or trimming because it's oddly focused on like weird meat bits, but like it, they are reducing their bloat, perhaps. I There's a phrasing yeah. that I can't find. I mean, there's been a lot of that over hiring during the pandemic and companies trying to correct it for sure. Outschool, I also found interesting, Natasha, and I, I think you had written that they pivoted from like marketing to consumers or, you know, people generally to working with enterprises who offered its classes to like employees as a benefit. Is that still their main yeah, focus? Yeah. I mean, and this is why I feel like I felt strongly about this company as an interesting one to cover and not super, you know, up in the clouds because before the downturn happened and customer habits were dramatically changing, they were already making plans and were pursuing a more sustainable business model of selling to enterprise, stickier customers because it's not just one-off parents. OutSchool was going in school. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and so I was really impressed by the fact that they had that foresight and they were planning ahead of ed tech leaving the extreme spotlight. So definitely a bummer to see what that correction looks like in terms of a staff size. Of course there was yeah. overhiring. Clearly there was overhiring. I mean, so it's an 18% cut in Marianne. We are seeing cuts between 10 and it feels like 20% being kind of a standard range for unicorn reductions. And that actually fits with the case of Loft. Yeah, so I wrote about Loft this week. It's a Brazilian prop tech. And similarly to OutSchool, it was valued at $2.9 billion last year. And it seemed to be on this growth trajectory. It also raised an extension round a few weeks after it announced the first tranche of that round. And its valuation, which is kind of unusual, jumped greatly during that time. But anyway, it laid off 380 employees this week, or 12% of its workforce. It's not the first layoff it's had this year. Earlier in the year, in April, it cut about 160 jobs. So that's a total of 540 employees. It's not shocking considering what's happening in real estate and and prop tech in general. Here in the U.S., we saw a lot of layoffs at Redfin and Compass. And clearly, the rising mortgage interest rates is, is really hurting the sector. And that's happening in Brazil as well. So Loft and and another prop tech unicorn, Quinto and Dar, laid off earlier this year. It's not shocking, but it is quite a large number of layoffs. It is. Yeah. I don't really like this trend that we're seeing where companies have two rounds of layoffs in a short period. Because I can get the beginning Mm -hmm. of the pandemic and now it bothers me to see a company already have that cut, say, and kind of probably make the other people who stayed feel like they're on this path towards a better place and then cut them off, you know, right after. Like, how do you get your planning that wrong? Yeah, I mean, Loft is, again, similar to like Redfin and and others. It's kind of like one of these sites to help people find homes. And it's also tried to expand into other areas. So I don't know how this is going to turn out. Uh, It's a very different real estate market in Latin America. And and they don't have MLS like we have here in the U.S. They face a lot of different challenges. So I was actually initially quite impressed with Loft and, again, Quinto and Dar as well. I thought they were doing some really interesting and impressive things. Are they a victim of also over hiring? I don't know, but definitely the real estate market is playing a huge factor in what's going on there. We'll see what happens. We will indeed. But some people are still writing checks into sectors that are doing less well. So I expect to see some real estate rounds still get done. And at the same time, we are seeing some big venture capital firms also raise money directed at certain sectors that are also struggling. So for example, guys, we recently saw that Sequoia Capital China is pipped to be raising $9 billion to invest in 
you'll guess it, China, given the name. And then we've also seen recently Andreessen Horowitz, of course, put together a $4.5 billion Web 3-ish fund, if you will. And so to me, we're seeing some VCs actually do some venture capital and I'm kind of here for it. I don't know if these bets will work out. I have some doubts. I have some positive things I could throw in, but like, isn't it nice to see some counter narrative investing? Oh yeah, it is. And and I actually talked to a VC a few weeks back, Conversion Capital's Christian Lawless. And you know, that firm closed on a $122 million fund, not massive, not huge, very niche investment thesis, looking at fintech and infrastructure startups. But one of the things I found most interesting is that he told me that last year, unlike many of the other venture firms, Conversion actually proceeded very cautiously and rather than go on an investment spree, really just sort of held back. In fact, they kind of stopped participating in series A's because they felt that they were so overvalued. So he told me that right now they're actually looking forward to allocating or deploying the majority of its capital now because it really held back a lot in 2021. I got the same tone from Allraise when I went and talked to January Ventures. They had mentioned that they'd already had their slowdown as a fund and now they're like going to be investing more. And so I totally see what you're saying, Marianne, where it's kind of cool to see people like begin to reemerge. A part of it feels a little bit like manifesting. Like I feel like a lot of VCs have been like, yeah, terms are really, you know, valuations are really coming down. Like deals are getting harder to do. And so founders are reading that and feeling like they have to lower their valuations in some way. And there's probably the reality. And then there's like the overcorrection as always and the undercorrection as always. So I have mixed feelings about VCs getting back into business because it makes sense math and financially. And part of it just feels a little bit like, okay, you wanted this to happen. You kind of wanted things to become more sane because you can invest a lot more now. Your dollars go much farther as a VC. Right. Okay. Right. Yes. Yes. Natasha, dead on. You were describing a intelligent and I would say uh, legally greedy approach to investing in venture capital, right? <laughs> right. It makes, right. it makes great sense on paper. What the hell was everyone else doing last year? Yeah, I know. That's true. Like, They're- why would you deploy the most capital when everything is the most expensive? It's like going to the sandwich shop at noon and trying to buy all the roast beef. Like, <laughs> what the hell? Wait. There's a lot of FOMO, right? Alex, we've talked about this before, where especially, again, to bring up fintech and fintech, like, there was this fear of, like, oh, if we don't get in at this company, right. you know, we're going to be missing out on a potentially new unicorn or decacorn in a matter of a year or two, right? So I think there was just this really competitive thing going on between these firms that they were like, we've got to get in on this. You know, we can't miss out. Somebody else will come in and then we've missed out on the next big, great thing. Also LPs, like I feel like there was probably a lot of positive feedback that investors were so good at their jobs because you can't be bad at your job during a boom. And so I'm sure LPs were like, keep doing more of that please. And so it's like, I guess I will keep doing more of that. <laughs> yeah. And then now LPs are like, all of our stock holdings are down. Please don't do anything. And it's <laughs> right. like, no, it's the worst possible time. We often joke about, you know, why do people, you know, buy high and sell low? That's because we're people, you know, in this case, a lot of VCs bought high last year and now apparently conversion capital is going to come in and buy everything at an 80% discount. I mean, <laughs> smart. it seems smart. There's a, a V word for this uh, vulture capital uh, that we have brought up occasionally during certain downturns. But I don't think it's fair to say that firms that conserve capital and can now write checks are being vultures. They're not, as long as they're not being overly onerous. 
Yeah, I agree. And, and I have to bring up another example. I talked to Justin Overdorf from Lightspeed Venture Partners a couple of months back, and he told me a similar thing. He said at that time, and I don't know since then, but at that time, he had not invested in any companies since October. So he seemed to be following a similar strategy. So I tend to agree with you, Alex. I wouldn't necessarily call it a vulture, vulture-like tendencies. I, I just think they're, you know, being cautious and smart and not rushing into things is, is not such a bad thing. It sounds like us if we were investors, you know? Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> let's, exactly. Let's end, Alex. You looked into Q2 2022 data, which feels like a Christmas present in July. Can you tell us kind of the high level of what we're seeing numbers-wise, not just kind of sentiment-wise? Well, given that birthday is this month, it feels like an early birthday gift. I think, really. <laughs> That's right. Thanks, everybody. You made yeah. data just for me, a whole document? <laughs> I just get to read through it? No, we're laughing because back at Crunchbase News, the three of us were very involved with creating these quarterly reports that major people do, and they're an enormous pain in the ass to put together. So anyways, it's really great oh. to just receive them in the mail, as it yes, were. Yes, it's true. It's it so is. true. I mean, do you remember the formatting wars? Oh, oh my, my gosh. God. Yeah. yeah. Agony. Anyways, Natasha asked a question. The answer is Crunchbase reports about $120 billion invested around the world in Q2 startups. And that is down 27% compared to the same quarter last year and 26% compared to Q1 of this year, which you will recall was down sequentially from Q4. So second quarter in a row of contracting venture capital activity around the world. Now in GDP terms, that would be recession. In this case, hard to get that mad about it because Q2 of this year, after all the declines, was still bigger than any single quarter in in 2020, including Q4. Wow. And if you'll recall, things were accelerating pretty quickly in Q4 of 2020. So things are decelerating, but it's hard to get that freaked out when startups did fine forever until 2021 with less than 120 billion a quarter. So what are we really seeing? There's a lot more work to do here. The US looks a little more stable than we expected. Okay. Last quarter, Europe and Africa were surprisingly up where the world was down. So we're still parsing, but that's the earliest look I can give. I mean, I'll take it. That does not feel as dark as I expected and is just now going to be a paragraph in every story I write. So thank you for writing that well, piece. <laughs> and I think it's important to put things in perspective with that, actually. And I think there's this thought that everything is just like cratering. Oh, this is just dark, dark days. But this is the reality is, you know what? Yeah, things are slowing down. But relatively speaking, there's still a lot of deal making going on. Yeah. And you know who benefits from the uh, general sentiment that things are cratering and no one's doing deals? VCs, which you will note have been talking about it ever so slightly on Twitter as if they are working their book. And on that note, we should close. Natasha and Marianne, as always, an absolute treat. We're back next week, Monday and Wednesday. And then I think we are live next Thursday. And if you don't hear this, we cut it out. So we're not. But <laughs> if you hear this, we are. And uh, so we'll see you then. And that'll be out, of course, Friday in all of your podcast channels. And we have something special coming up about our robotics event as a little tease. So if you like Brian Heater, get hype. Who doesn't? He's great. He's awesome. All right. We're out of here. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 